from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. Since the start of this year, there have been multiple demolition drives in Muslim-dominated colonies across cities over alleged illegalities. My colleague Chandrima Banerjee decided to examine the myths and popular beliefs that exist about Muslim-majority colonies as well as the problems they face. Person that I was interviewing in Silampur who uh, ran a factory where they made all kinds of uh, metal cases for different machines. Uh, you know, I was interviewing him and he was very bothered about the stereotypes about Muslim localities. And he said, you know, Silampur is often called mini Pakistan, as are many Muslim localities across India. Um, and he said, but, you know, it, the truth is that it's not mini Pakistan, it's actually mini Japan. Over the past few weeks, there have been multiple major anti-encroachment drives in Delhi. The first one took place in April at Jahangirpuri, a Muslim-majority area, and came days after an incident of communal violence. On the 9th of May, a similar drive was held in Shahinbagh, the site of a long protest against the Citizenship Amendment Act. Since then, other areas have faced similar action. The demolition drives in Delhi and in states like Madhya Pradesh and Gujarat largely targeted Muslim-majority areas. These were said to have been inspired by similar methods successfully employed in Uttar Pradesh. The demolition drives do raise questions about due process, but it's also important to look at how Muslim-majority localities come up and why they are easy targets. I spoke with two experts who have studied Muslim-majority colonies in India cities to understand how these settlements came to be, how they are perceived and how the state treats them. Ghazala Jamil, who you just heard, is an assistant professor at JNU who has worked on urbanization and segregation in Indian cities for over a decade. She says India's cities may be thought of as being cosmopolitan, but really aren't. I would say our cities are quite segregated. Even the more uh, metropolitan cities, which are supposedly very cosmopolitan, uh, on the face value, but even those cities are very segregated along uh, caste lines, along religious lines, and along class lines. And, you know, the class line is obviously much more uh, visible, but various other identities and segregation around those identities is not that visible. Ghazala Jamil says that this segregation is often made to sound like it's either enforced or voluntary, but the reality is a little more complicated. The reason why I did research on uh, segregation is because, uh, you know, as a Muslim scholar myself, as a researcher, as a development uh, uh, worker, I uh, have been also living in various uh, localities in Delhi. And my own experience of Delhi was that uh, segregation was way more complex than what it was always made out to be. So the most of the literature on segregation says that Muslims uh, live in separate uh, localities because uh, of either um, uh, fear or related to their own security, uh, fear of communal violence, 
or on the other hand several theorists and researchers have said that it is because of their uh, inward looking and insularity that they don't want to uh, you know uh, live with other communities that it is self segregation right um, so my own experience as i said was uh, said that it was way more complicated than that there were of course various you know journalistic evidence also exists that says that there is also uh, rampant uh, housing segregation where people who do want to live in mixed localities are uh, not able to do that even when they can afford to uh, live in those localities so if you were to go by the usual market logic the idea that markets are uh, value neutral the very idea of free market where if you have a purchasing power then you should be able to buy any uh, commodity or any product on the market or any service on the market that's there to be sold but in case of housing whether rental housing or you know uh, real estate etc it was found that that's not really true there's there recently you know in the last uh, a uh, decade or so i think there has been a lot of research which has established that uh, discrimination somehow flouts this logic of free markets where even if you can afford to pay rents or buy property in a particular locality uh, on market rates you might still not be able to do that for various reasons basically beyond the point even money doesn't matter kutsia contractor teaches at iit goa and has extensively researched cities and the muslim identity in india while studying how muslims live in mumbai she saw discrimination even in low cost housing our recent research has shown that there exists discrimination in high and middle income housing too like especially in these huge gated communities that have flourishing in in mumbai you know and um, having a muslim name could seriously compromise one's ability to secure housing as is true for one's food preferences especially if you are uh, someone who belongs to a community that is traditionally non vegetarian for instance so this results in segregation of many social groups muslims of course are you know highly affected by this she says there might be a sense of solidarity in forming close knit communities where people can look out for one another in mumbai over the decades there has been a steady concentration along religious lines uh, within slums itself so one of the main reasons uh, have been uh, the targeting of muslim slum pockets by slum demolition squads it started during the emergency time and then incidences of communal violence that have forced families to move to safer areas where they could find accommodation um unfortunately their concerns for safety and dignity are often addressed by choosing to live in predominantly muslim localities rather than by the state and that is one of the main reasons why they end up feeling more comfortable and more uh, welcome in you know muslim uh, localities So what happens to a locality when it's identified as a muslim area Kutsia contractor and Ghazla Jamil explain how there's a difference in how these areas are seen and dealt with So the the general uh, you know feeling that you know people whom I have spoken to in that locality uh, tend to be, feel that you know they feel unwanted to begin with in a city where they contribute so much uh the city practically runs on their labor they are you know the drivers of auto rickshaws that we take they are food vendors uh you know they are uh, involved in constructing homes 
decorating homes so it's it's a lot of them are involved in you know our domestic help so a lot of their labor goes into you know the kind of uh, you know modern life that a city promises but unfortunately uh, when it comes to giving them an equal share of this urban life you know the modern uh, you know amenities that an urban life is supposed to promise an egalitarian uh you know kind of uh, living environment that an urban uh, context should promise we are not able to give give it to them so this is uh, you know often you know the kind of uh, discourse i hear from uh, you know uh, my respondents who uh, feel persecuted who feel that they are not really they're not getting uh, the best they can for themselves and for their families for their children in this current scenario which is increasingly becoming more and more hostile of course i conducted a, a field work in uh, silampur which of course you would remember saw a lot of communal violence uh, uh, targeted uh, anti muslim violence uh, in uh, 2020 um, and uh, uh, jamia nagar uh, also some parts of walled city and old delhi and i conducted uh, some interviews in uh, um, you know uh, upper class residential housing societies uh, established by muslims so overall as i said in the beginning uh, some of the patterns that you see in uh, this segregation is that segregation uh, there is a variety amongst Uh, muslim localities so the stereotype that all muslim localities are dark and dense without any amenities etc etc um, you know uh, infested by criminals uh, you know, those stereotypes that have come from bollywood etc you know uh, those are those are not true for uh, for all communities and in uh, uh, some of the areas i also saw that um during my field work i've written about it in the book that there was actually an open kind of tolerance i would you know um uh, characterize it as tolerance by police to certain kinds of criminal activities in order to perpetuate uh, the stereotypes so we know for example that in in any city uh, or anywhere law enforcement can be lax or can be very stringent depending on uh the social identity of the people uh in african american ghettos for example there is often a certain kind of violence that is perpetuated by the police themselves uh and tolerated by you know gangster activity or drugs etc that are uh, you know allowed to go on uh up till a certain point so i saw some of those uh tendencies kutsia contractor says the quality of life in a muslim locality is often visibly worse and comes with the tag of illegality when you come say for instance in mumbai it's very obvious it's hard to miss that muslim localities are you know uh, you know the living conditions are far worse there are very few state amenities uh it's 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 a very common sight in muslim localities to feel as though they are dilapidating you know it's everything is kind of rotting and crumbling and during the course of my own research i've noted that the muslim poor often come to identify the state more with policing and surveillance 
uh, rather than its values of welfare and justice. And this is something which is very, very worrisome. Apart from it being predominantly Muslim, the fact that the living conditions are really bad because it is close to a garbage dump, it uh, uh, came up because a sizable uh, population of this particular slum happened to be working in a you know, in a slaughterhouse, uh, the, one of the city's largest slaughterhouses, which was moved out of, uh, you know, the city limits uh, to sort of keep an, you know, undesirable occupation out to the outskirts. So um, all of these together have sort of uh, added up to uh, a, a constant state of neglect. So there are, you know, hardly any schools. If there are any schools and they're only till seventh grade, they don't necessarily, they're not really upgraded to, uh, you know, suit the kind of, uh, you know, uh, demand that the community is making, for instance, on these resources. As a result, one has seen a flourishing of private uh, schools in the area. Uh, there is no uh, health facility. There is no hospital in that particular area. There are only, you know, uh, primary health centers, which uh, dispense preventive services which are supposed to address communicable diseases. So the whole mindset of the state is to basically see that this is constant, this area is constantly surveillanced, it is constantly policed and kept into control uh, because they see them as a source of malice, as a source of, uh, you know, uh, disease. So linking illegality to Muslims is, is has become more pronounced in recent times. So there have been various definitions of what is considered to be illegal, right, from colonial to now. So and Currently, we are in a, in a moment where illegality has become synonymous with uh, the Muslim poor. So, uh, as you can see in the case of Jahangir Puri, the label may not necessarily make sense in general of those who are rendered homeless, have documents, right, to prove their legal entitlements. But this label has been given to them as that they are illegal. So, it's also a kind of uh, mindset. It's a kind of myth-making that goes into this label of illegality. Ghazala Jamil also says there's a long history in how Indian cities treat what get termed as illegal colonies. If you look at most of the literature on, on uh, Indian, the, urban, the experience of urbanization in India, you would realize that informality uh, and illegality are often uh, used interchangeably. So a lot of illegality uh, is actually ha has historically been tolerated very well by uh, municipalities and uh, state governments and even you know uh, various other uh, uh, ministries or uh, or uh, for example railways etc. You know where they have they've had uh, real estate. Uh, or in, in Delhi, we have uh, Delhi Development Authority, DDA. So on their uh, property uh, properties, there have been various uh, instances where for years and for decades, the uh, state and its institutions turned a blind eye to the so-called illegal development, right? Uh, so colonies were instituted by all kinds of people, poor people, but also, you know, not so poor people have uh, invested in illegal development in order to uh, just lay claim to the city to make it livable for themselves or just, you know, for profit uh, motivations. 
so and as i said it has been tolerated quite well by the indian state because it it has been a dominant mode of urbanization in india to turn a blind eye to it to let people do what they want to do and later you know in most cases regularize those colonies or this uh, uh, you know sort of uh, uh, expel people from those areas both academics point out that the involvement of the state in targeting muslim settlements also changes things a lot the community is left with little recourse to appeal and that comes with ominous signs for indian society the uh, day that the municipality took this action in delhi was preceded by a similar action in several other parts of the country and in it happened in states where uh, bjp has been in power is in power uh, this is a mode of governance a mode of destructive governance that has been sort of uh, claimed with a lot of pride during the uh, uttar pradesh assembly elections by the bjp if you look at the history of and the mode of uh, violence in communal the so called communal riots uh, in india you would see that every time you know not only that people are beaten up or people are killed or economic there and livelihoods are devastated but also that uh, houses are damaged so in muzaffarnagar also you saw in gujarat also in 2002 you saw that people the, they would uh, drill uh, holes into roofs blast uh, gas cylinders etc and there was uh, there is research that shows that there, there is lot of planning and resources that go into not only violence but also how houses will be disrupted destruction of muslim houses has been a feature of communal violence which has not i think attracted as much attention uh, as it should have and now of course what we are seeing is that it is the uh, state agencies uh, not only the police but also now municipal corporations and their officials who are doing this kind of communal attacks on muslim localities and muslim uh, dwellings one of the paradox one has to also understand what i have seen in uh, uh, in my own research is that um, what is very apparent from this is how certain societal elements are influencing the state as well so we have a constitution we have uh, you know certain laws in place which uphold certain kinds of values right of secularism of welfare and justice but then there is also this societal justice um so which we have seen for instance in the case of lynchings yeah so um, of course the state machinery has been silent and been a, you know a kind of uh, side spectator Uh, in incidences of this kind and uh, very much uh, also in the case of uh, communal violence but what one also feels uh, that is important to highlight is that uh, there is a constant hope to sort of also appeal to this other side of the state which is expected to uh, you know uphold uh, values of justice and welfare um so in spite of years of this kind of persecution um one part of being part of one aspect of being part of uh, a nation one aspect of being a citizen is also being able to make demands and one's voice to be heard 
Yeah. So um, we are still at a stage where people are hopeful, you know, that something can be done. So I think uh, it is also very uh, important for larger society to also have a voice and speak up uh, against what is happening because uh, silence around, uh, you know, incidences of this kind is what is the most disturbing thing. And it moves us a step closer to, you know, um, uh, becoming a more repressive, oppressive state, uh, which has no regard for democratic values. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.